Hebrews 2 is where we are. Let's turn our attention more soberly now to God's Word. We've been in Hebrews for a, a few weeks. Hebrews 2. First chapter portrays Jesus in all of His resplendent glory as God. Chapter 1 drives home the point that Jesus is God. But now as we turn a page to the second chapter of Hebrews, the writer, whomever he is, we do not know, this writer changes gears. And now he draws our attention to that aspect of Jesus which makes him such a mystery. For this God is at once and the same time man. In the second chapter of Hebrews, this writer draws our attention not merely to his divinity, but to the humanity of Jesus. Together, this God-man. And as we read verses 5 through 9, you're going to see, in my judgment, a surprising twist. His reason for Christ's humanity is not what you might think. So if you found Hebrews 2, I invite you to stand with me as we read together God's Word. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5. I'll read through verse 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. You see, it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him... For a little while, lower than the angels. But now you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But notice this next sentence. At present, we don't actually see everything in subjection to him. But here's what we do see. Verse 9. We see him. Who's the him? Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Would you join me now as we pray? Father in heaven, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would show us your glory. The glory of the God who became man. The matchless God-man, Jesus Christ. Exalt Him, I pray, and use me in spite of me. As a means to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You ever find yourself asking the question... In verse 6, what is man? You ever had those philosophical moments where you've just started to wonder, what is the meaning of man? Who am I? Why am I here? Some of you teenagers in this room have surely come to that point, influenced by school, Influenced by everything changing in your life, you're about to enter a new stage of life, wondering, who exactly am I? What is my identity? You 20-somethings in this room, young in your career, surely you've asked the question, where exactly am I going? 
What is my purpose in life? I've worked awfully hard to get to this point, and now I'm wondering, is this the trajectory I ought to go? Who am I? Where am I going? I I suspect a great many in this room, median, senior adults, those of you that have lived some life, you may be wondering, why am I even here? Why do I exist? What is my purpose anymore? Who? What? Where? Why? What is the meaning of life? That's the big question. And how you answer that question makes all the difference. If you spend too much time in a science book, drinking deeply from the latest theories, you may be challenged, you may be inclined, you may be tempted to conclude with... Bill Nye, the science guy, that I'm just a speck on a speck orbiting a speck in the corner of a speck in the middle of nowhere. You drink too deeply from philosophy, you may be inclined to answer the question, what is man? I don't know. Meaningless. There is no meaning to life. Nothing. We're just here. We're a vapor. We're gone. Everybody that tries to find meaning is just grasping. You watch TV too long, you may be inclined to answer the question, well, whatever you decide. I mean, it's your choice. Anything goes. It's good. You can decide this is the meaning, but that completely opposite, uh, contradictory meaning, well, that's good too. You could be inclined towards that end. I suspect a great many of you who drink deeply from social media, your great temptation is to say, well, if I were to answer the question, what is man, I must conclude that man is the center of everything. That all this centers around me and my self-proclaimed identity, my purpose. I am divinity in disguise. I am, as it were, a god. Who are we? What are we? What, my friends, is this great meaning of life? I want to invite you to turn away from the science book, turn away from the works of philosophy, turn off the TV, shut off your phone, and turn to this word, the Bible, the word of the living God, which describes itself as a mirror, meaning when you look at it, you see yourself. And as you gaze into this book, I want you to see who you are as God sees you. I want you to see a biblical understanding of yourself. I want you to see what the writer of Hebrews saw. Indeed, in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5, the author of Hebrews changes gears, having described in great detail the great glorious divinity of Jesus, he shifts gears. And in verse 5, he starts to describe who man is. Now, why would he do that? He begins to describe who we really are in God's eyes because he wants these original recipients of this letter, the Jewish people spread out throughout the land, he wants them to see why God would become a man. And the, re- the way you figure out the answer to that big question, why would God become man? Is you need to not only understand God, but you need to understand, my friends, man. So let's sit at his feet 
and let's learn who we are and why God became one of us. I want to impress upon your hearts this Lord's Day, this theme of the text. My friends, you were made for so much more. I want to lift your gaze up from the science book. Lift your gaze up from television, from social media. I want you to see in God's eyes you were made for so much more. Look, if you will, at verse 6. It says it's been testified somewhere. (laughs) That's a really funny thing to say. Did the writer forget where he found this next text? He is referencing the 8th Psalm, King David's Psalm, and he probably said it's found, it's been testified somewhere to emphasize mainly that this is God's words, not merely David's words. Nevertheless, he's quoting Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, we find David, that great shepherd, that sweet psalmist of Israel. David, who was shepherding God's flock. David, who was out in the fields, literally shepherding a flock of sheep. Spent many a night laying with his back on the grass, gazing up at the starry sky. And as he beheld the glory of God's almighty sky, David could not help but cry out in Psalm 8, beginning in verse 4, When I look at your heavens, when I look at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, I can't help but ask, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? David is just crying out, I don't get this. And I want you to see, I resonate with David here. The more I read the Bible, the smaller I see myself to be. The more I study God, the more great He becomes and the smaller I become. I feel more unworthy. I feel more undeserving. And I'm telling you, it becomes all the more unthinkable to me that God, the infinite creator of heaven and earth, would condescend and become like me. Why did God not come to earth and become a shining star, a mighty mountain, Why did he not become a vast outsized ocean? Why would he not become a great towering tree as so many religions have tried to grasp? Why man? Our text answers this question. Why did God become a man? It rehearses the gospel of the God-man. And what it does is, in my judgment, shows us three reasons why God became a man Three reasons why you were made for so much more. Number one, if you're taking notes, mark these down. You are, my friends, distinctly designed. Did you notice what he said in verse 7? God, you made him. My friends, you are designed by a creator. I know you know this, but just let it sit upon you anew. You are no cosmic accident. You are not downstream from an evolutionary process. You are not, as that old poem said, once I was an amoeba just beginning to begin. Then I was a tadpole with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey swinging from a tree, and now I'm a professor with a PhD. (laughs) My friends, we are no cosmic accident. We are not some evolutionary byproduct. We have been designed by a master maker. In the beginning, God, subject, created. There was no verb before that. In the beginning, there was God. And everything that comes from him happened through his creative work. He created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. 
We call that ex nihilo. He made it from nothing. On the first day, it says he created the heavens and the earth. He created night and day. He created, he the timeless eternal one created time. On the second day, he created the sky and the seas. He created all the wind and all the waves. On the third day, he created all the plants, both the giant sequoias and the smallest, beautiful, intricate flowers. On the fourth day, he filled the space with sun, moon, stars, and planets. He created the great Milky Way and our very solar system. He created it all. And then he filled the seas with fish on the fifth day, and he filled the skies with birds, both the mighty blue whale and the smallest of hummingbirds. And then on that sixth day, not only did he create all the animals, both elephants and the smallest, like a roly-poly, he created something unusual on day six. All those other days, he said it was good. It was good. But on this sixth and final day, when he created what we call humans, mankind, God said it was very good. Now, why? Why would God say you and I are very good? For in Genesis 1 and verse 27, he gives us his reason. We, unlike the rest of creation, were made in his image made in the image of God and in this text he shows us three clues or four clues behind this distinction what distinguishes us from the rest of creation what makes us in the image of God first off I want you to notice in verse 5 he makes very clear that we were distinctly designed for eternity look if you will at verse 5 it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, implied it was to us. Okay, now don't get hung up on what's going on with the angels. Put that on the shelf. We're going to come back to that. I just want you to look at that little phrase, the world to come. We were made for more than this world. My friends, the grass withers. The flowers fade. Your animals die. Not so with you and I. We were made for eternity. We were made in such a way that God breathed into us the breath of life, inferring for us that unlike your dog and cat and the trees of the field, we have a soul. We are not merely bodies. We are souls that have a body. We are made in the image of God, imbued with the breath of God within us. We are made for eternity. By the way, that's why we can face death and not do so as those who have no hope. If you were here a few months ago, in October, I baptized an older gentleman, one of our newer members of the church, Jim Watson. There was a photo the church put out on social media. You can see it on the screen. Jim had known the Lord for many, many years and was finally baptized before you at the age of 76. What I did not tell you in that baptistry in October was that Jim had discovered in the time we were counseling for baptism that he had a terminal cancer diagnosis. And Jim just passed away this weekend. I'll be doing his funeral this afternoon at 3 o'clock. Now, I draw that to your mind because I want you to see something Jim told me with great faith. As he sat in my office with his lovely wife beside him, 
Jim looked me in the eye and said, I'm not afraid to die. Now, why? Because that sounds awfully brave, but really? Why? Because Jim learned what the writer of Hebrews knew, that you and I were made for more than this world. We were made for the world to come. We are a soul that will go forever. We are God's. My friends, you were distinctly designed for eternity. But if you'll notice in verse 6, we were also distinctly designed for, lack of a better word, community. Look, if you will, at verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? That means God remembers you. Or the son of man, that's a poetic repetition, by the way. Don't draw too much of a distinction. The son of man that you care for him, that you visit him, that you are attentive to him. In other words, what he's saying is God has a unique relationship to his people than he does to the trees and the birds and the fish. God relates differently. Jeremiah 24 and verse 7, I'm going to give these humans a heart to know me. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. I just want you to take a step back with me and consider how astounding it is that the God of all creation, he who Hebrews says upholds the universe by the word of his power, this God who controls the wind and the waves, this very God, the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover, almighty creator of heaven and earth, this God knows you and has made you to be known and to know him. This God knows the hairs on your head, the thoughts of your heart. He is mindful of you. He cares for you. If you don't feel how amazing this is, I want to encourage you this afternoon to go home and after lunch, take your Bible, lay it on your lap, and go read Job 38 through 42. Mark that in your margin. Job 38 through 42, and sit in silence. You probably will fall to your knees as you see how great this God is and how astounding it is that this God would condescend to know, be mindful of, and care for you. My friends, we were distinctly designed both for eternity, for community. Thirdly, we were distinctly designed to have dignity. Look at verse 7. You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and now you've crowned him with glory and with honor. Okay, now, why were we crowned with glory and honor? Why not angels? I mean, every time you read the Bible and angels show up on the scene, it's such an astounding sight that everybody falls over. In fact, that's why angels always say, fear not, because everybody's afraid. They are an astounding sight. Why not the angels? He says, angels are only over you for a little while because you are mere flesh. But there will one day come a day where you will live forever in my presence and you will exceed the very angels. Why are we the pinnacle of creation? Or why not the Grand Canyon? What an astounding sight. Why not Mount Everest? I just watched a documentary about Mount Everest. It's unbelievable. Why not the great Pacific Ocean or a blazing sun, the great Andromeda galaxy? Why did God decide that of all the wonderful works of his creative hand, the pinnacle of his creation would be you and measly me? Why this speck on a speck orbiting a speck in the corner of a speck in the middle of nowhere? Why us? For again, he says, unlike Andromeda, 
and the Pacific Ocean. You and I were made in his image. Just consider this analogy. My wife Lauren and I, we went to the Grand Canyon for the first time this year. And it was a sight to behold. I mean, breathtaking. One of those you just look and you could stand there for 30 minutes and just take it in. But before the Lord, as I beheld the matchless glory of the Grand Canyon, that wonderful moment of glory paled in comparison to the moment I held my little girl when she was born. Genuinely. Now why? Because there is something uniquely precious, dignified, sanctified, different about mankind. A precious soul. Unlike the Grand Canyon, you and I and my little girl are fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist says. This is why we as a church, and I'm going to repeat what I told you last Sunday, we unapologetically, unequivocally advocate for the sanctity of human life. Because we believe without a shadow of a doubt that God has declared all human life from womb to tomb is precious, it's dignified, it's made in His image, and as this text says, crowned with glory and honor. My friends, we are distinctly designed with dignity, with, for community. We are distinctly designed for eternity. And the most stunning thing of all is in the first half of verse 8, it says we are distinctly designed for authority. Look, just look here. It says in verse 8, he put everything in subjection under his feet. And then he clarifies, because if I read that, I'm like, nah, I don't know what he means there. He makes it clear. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Really? That's astounding. This should draw our minds back to God's initial command to his people, to Adam and Eve in that primordial garden of Eden, where he said, have dominion. This is Genesis 1:27. Take dominion over everything. In other words, creation is for you. You realize the sun shines for you, the rain falls for you, the trees grow for you, the flowers bloom for you, the birds sing for you, the wind blows for you, the tides ebb and flow for God's pinnacle of creation, mankind. We were made to take dominion over the created world. The world was made for us and God's glory. This is in our DNA. We are all intuitively aware that we are made to reign, to have authority over the world. It's the whole history of humanity, by the way. Medical advances, technological advances, educational advances, governmental, political advances all illustrate our desire to take dominion over God's created world. And yet, and yet, and yet, something's not right. We haven't. Anybody in this room feel like they've got all of creation in subjection to them? Despite centuries of medical advances that marvel the human mind, one microscopic virus out of a city most had not heard of has brought the whole world to its knees. Despite 
all the amazing, fantastic advances in educational access. The most educated society in history. What's the fruit of that? Ours is a society that says men can be pregnant and creates emojis to illustrate it. Despite, my friends, all the technological advances that we have witnessed in our lifetime, a great many of you were alive when those technological advances almost brought this world to a fiery, incinerated end. Something has gone awry. See that latter half of verse 8? You ought to underscore it, circle it, highlight it. This is a loaded phrase, for he says in what is perhaps the greatest understatement of all time, at present, we don't see everything in subjection to man. The writer of Hebrews says, well, here's the trick. God designed us this way with this very distinct design. We are distinctly designed by God. But number two, my friends, as the latter half of verse 8 makes abundantly clear, we are presently deeply depraved. The Bible says quite clearly that we have turned our back on our maker. We are no longer those who have dominion over creation. We have been dominated by creation. The curse of sin and death has entered through Adam and Eve and now original sin taints all of us. Now here's what that actually means. The Bible teaches that you and I are depraved sinners. That's kind of an archaic way to say every part of us is infected with sin. Okay, so let's be clear when we say we are totally depraved, we do not mean we are as sinful as we could be. Manifestly, there are Hitlers and Stalins of the world. What it's teaching is that every part of you has been infected by sin. Spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, head to toe. Every last vestige of you has been tainted with the curse of sin and death. Here's the great illustration. No matter how hard we try to overcome no matter what we do, guess what? We all still die. No matter how powerful you climb in this culture, no matter how much you have, you, my friends, will wither and die with the grass of the field, the flowers of the field. We don't have dominion. We have no real meaningful control. So what hope do we possibly have we who were distinctly designed for glory, for eternity, for community. My friends, we were distinctly designed for authority. What hope could we possibly have? Herein lies the precious promise of Hebrews 2 and verse 9. Let me conclude our time this Lord's Day by impressing the wonder of this text on your heart. For I want you to see thirdly that we, though, are distinctly designed by God, and we who are presently deeply depraved before a holy God. Number three, I want you to see that we are divinely delivered. This God has done for us what we could not do for himself. My friends, look. You can't look to education to deliver you. You can't look to technology to deliver you. You can't look to economic increases to deliver you. You cannot look anywhere but where the writer in verse 9 looks. He says, we don't see, in verse 8, we don't see everything in subjection right now, but we see Him. Who do we see? We see Him. 
We see no man. We see no political savior, no technological savior. We see no educational savior, no medical savior, but we see him, the God-man. We see Jesus, who uniquely, distinctly, alone is able to deliver us from our depravity back to our original design. May I very quickly just impress verse 9 upon your heart so that you can see that we have been divinely delivered firstly by the God-man's life. Look, if you will, at verse 9. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus, whom Philippians 2 very poetically illustrates Christ in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is one way to say Christmas happened. God came in the flesh, the great incarnation. God came to live the life we could never live. And he did so through the eternal second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the God-man. I want you to see that God came as Jesus, made a little lower than angels for a little while, so that he could live the life you and I have been utterly unable to live since the days of Adam and Eve. He perfectly fulfilled God's distinct design for humanity. He never erred one second, but he did not finish there. I want you to see we have been divinely delivered not merely by his life. We have been delivered by the God-man's death. For notice what it says next in verse 9. It says, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And why was he crowned? Because of the suffering of his death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death. For everybody. Jesus died for you. Feel anew what that death did for you. This was a costly death. He suffered. He took a penalty. That's why we call it a penal death. He took something from us. Jesus came and absorbed the punishment of God. It was a costly death. This was a willing death. Notice it says, by the grace of God he did this. Meaning it was motivated by love. He did this not because he had to or should have. He did it purely out of his loving kindness. What the Bible calls grace. It was a willing death for you. This was a, oh here's a big word, a propitiating death. Here's what that big old word in the Bible means. This was a death in which God came through Jesus took all of his righteous anger towards our sin and instead of putting it on me and you, he misdirected it. He turned it away from you and he put all of his righteous judgment on Jesus. Which is why when Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For in that moment, Jesus was absorbing the wrath of God, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the Bible. He took our place, a willing death, a costly death, a death where he propitiated all God's wrath. He absorbed it all. And my friends, lastly, this was a substitutionary death because he did it. For you, it says at the last clause, so that he might taste death for everybody. Taste death doesn't mean he just dabbled in it. In the original language, it means he took it fully. He had it. It was as if he took that cup in the Last Supper and he drank every last drop. He took it all. He 
struck it till it was gone and no more. He took all the penalty of sin and death and cried out to Telestai, it is finished. He paid, my friends, it all. We have been divinely delivered from our depravity by the God-man who lived for us, the God-man who died for us. But we moved very quickly over that phrase right in the middle. This God who suffered and died, it says, was crowned with glory and honor. How could you crown with glory and honor a dead man? Because Jesus did not stay dead and buried. We know with full assurance that this man who lived the life we never lived and died the death that we deserved was mightily and triumphantly resurrected from the dead, declaring for all eternity that God's righteous requirements had been fulfilled in Jesus' life and God's just judgment for sin had been paid in Jesus' death. And so he raised him from the dead, declaring for all time that this Jesus is the man I made you to be. He is the one who demonstrated your distinct design and your only hope of being delivered from your depravity and returning to your original design is if by a miraculous wonder, which is what we call the gospel of Jesus, that you look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I trust that you are the one who did what you said you did. And his promise is if you confess your sins, if you just believe it, you confess that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the scripture's precious promise to you is that you shall be saved. My friends, do you see him? Do you see him? I'm guessing there are probably some in this room that would say, oh, Kyler, if only I could. If only I could see his face. If I could hear his voice. If only I could put my hands in his wounds. If only I could have witnessed his wonders. Then I, I could believe. If only I could have seen him, I'd have believed it. May I tenderly caution you that had you been given that privilege, in all probability you would have been as the Pharisees were. Those who saw but didn't perceive. Those who heard but didn't hear. Those who witnessed his wonders and hardened their heart. My friends, I want you to see that seeing is not believing. When he says we see Christ... It is not with these organs called our eyes. You optometrists in the room, be merciful to me. I'm about to use an illustration from your field. <laughs> but my understanding, limited as it may be, is that the way God designed our eyes is that when we behold a field of vision, our eyes, because of the shape of the lens, inverts the image. It's upside down. It's turned around. But our brain by God's mighty, distinct, creative work, interprets that upside-down image rightly. The brain doesn't believe what the eyes see. The brain sees what the eyes are bringing in and corrects it, turns it back, so that as I behold this great room, I see all of you right side up. You see, seeing is not, in the final analysis, believing. 
Our very eyes testify to the fact that we need a divine creator to come and do for us what we in our finite physical minds and hearts cannot do for ourselves. And so I pray, oh, I pray that this Lord's day you would with eyes of faith just look to him. Stop looking at man. Stop looking down. Raise your eyes up and just look to Jesus. And with eyes shut and with hearts crying out to God, say, oh, God, would you help me to see him by faith? Would you invert the image? Would you help me see that my present understanding of reality is skewed? It is wrong. Oh God, help me to see who I really am as you've revealed yourself to be in this book. I pray, Hickory Grove, that you would see Him. And as we do, that we would see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, who was crowned with glory and honor. He who suffered death, who tasted death for everyone. Would you join me as we pray to that end? With your heads bowed, I invite you to cry out to God to do the miracle that my mere words cannot do. Pray and ask God Almighty to come and open your eyes to see Jesus with eyes of faith. Perhaps you need to cry out and confess your depravity, your sin before Him. And ask God anew to impress the simple, glorious truth that a kindergartner and the most educated amongst us can alike grip. That we have a Savior, a divine deliverer, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who lived the life we never lived, who died the death we deserved, and who was mightily, triumphantly resurrected from the dead so that we might be delivered from our deep depravity and returned to our distinct design. Do this, I pray, Lord, for the sake of Jesus' name and the good of this church I love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite you to stand to your feet, and as we stand and sing, let's cry out together in response to this great God of grace.